Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. As our communities, large and small, bring back a more progressive Main Street, individuals are stepping out to pursue their passions and local leaders are pushing back against corporate greed. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success and how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large. Join us now in conversation. I love jeans. I love how they feel when the fit is perfect, how you can change the way a pair of jeans looks by rolling them or scuffing them, and how they fade and the wash changes. I like how I can wear a pair to a casual meetup and then grab another pair to dress it up to a more formal event. And since I moved to Greenville, I have been eyeing Billum jeans. I spoke out loud that I was going to get a custom pair. But not only did I get the absolutely perfectly fitted pair, but I also got the chance to talk to the artist behind the Billum brand, Bill Mitchell. After we spoke, I stepped into the custom pair of jeans he had created for me, and they were a perfect fit. And I knew they would be because our very first fitting, he pulled the right waist size the first time and made it seem effortless to help me think through the style that I wanted. But I don't need to sing his praises, his straightforward way of speaking to his business and to his art reveals his mastery. Join us now in conversation. So let's just start with, can you introduce yourself and where we're sitting today? My name is Bill Mitchell, and I own a jean company, a custom jean company in Greenville, South Carolina called Billiam Jeans. And we are currently sitting in my private manufacturing facility, and uh, we're right downtown in Unity Park. Awesome. I think a lot of people would say custom jeans. Why that? I can just go to Old Navy and buy a $12 pair of jeans or $20 pair of jeans now with inflation. It's true. Why are you doing this custom jean thing? Well, I would say that most people, if they if they have that mindset, should go to Old Navy and buy mm-hmm. the 12 to $20 pair of jeans. In fact, I personally might go and just buy some $20 jeans from them. In fact, I bought jeans from Costco recently. I did return them, but uh, I, I tried it. And You're I was getting like, on that Costco closed train. Like, Let me see if this is like if this is worth it. And and uh, after you know almost like stabbing myself in the back, I was like, there is a huge difference between having the right measurements for your body, mm. and it's just a subtle thing that. You know, the price is going to keep most people away, mm-hmm. but for somebody that really wants that attention to detail, it's just like anything else. It's it's just, you, you don't really know until you have it done for you, and then you're like, wow, this actually makes me feel so much better that 
my calves aren't always tight in my jeans or, Mm -hmm. you know, that when I wake up in the morning, I know that at least I have one thing that looks good. Mm -hmm. So that that kind of that's it. It just kind of solves people's problems. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about custom jeans versus and I'm just using Old Navy as an example, because it was the first one that popped in my head. Old Navy would be considered, I think, by most people, fast fashion. So there's that sustainability piece, too. Is that a part of your work or is that just a byproduct of I like making custom jeans and therefore I also am not part of this fast fashion? For sure. Unsustainable model. It's very strange because I never set out to do like an anti fast fashion thing. That was never part of the plan. It was just a hobby that happened to take a long time, you know, Mm -hmm. and then it was like, okay, well, if it takes me three days to make a a single pair of jeans, can I get that faster? And, uh, you know, for me, the, the, the main difference is, um, corporations are using a set, um, that set size chart for all their measurements. So if you come in, you're a size 10, then you're going to get their algorithm of what a size 10 should be. Mm -hmm. And really nobody is that size 10, you know. And so uh, I think for me, uh, most people were just bringing their problems. And Mm -hmm. usually the only way you can can have those problems solved if if you go to somebody that's going to spend more time with you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the very idea of Billium is that it's a service-based product, Um, a service-based company that is attached to a product. And that can only be done in a slow way. As I've gotten further into my journey, then I've been able to choose different fabrics and and play more into the sustainability uh, side of things where a lot of our denims have recycled water bottles in them or or are from mills that are no no longer around, and so you know that that fabric would have just gone to the landfill, mm-hmm. and instead is being used to to make new really beautiful garments. And the mills you're talking about are cone mills in North Carolina. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I learned a lot about them when I worked for Levi's actually, because mm-hmm. that a lot of their denim came from there. How did you get that denim? What did you? Uh, have to do to get some well, of those kind of archive denims. Yeah, I mean, I I was just a kid, you know, just just approaching a mill in the very beginning, asking questions of how could I get fifty yards of fabric, and they they luckily, um, or like I I had a friend who knew somebody who worked there. Mm. So luckily I had a connection to to the mill. So I, I started to get fabric and I started to buy their like their offcuts or if they made a thousand yards, they could make 30 extra yards for me or a hundred extra yards for me. And so um, I was buying basically their surplus unwanted fabric. It was still great fabric. And, uh, and I did that for probably about probably about 10 years with them before they announced they were closing. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe a little shorter, maybe seven years. But once they announced that they were closing, my friend who worked there was like, hey, we've got this really rare collection of fabric that's, it's almost like a library of everything we've ever done. And it's only five yard rolls. So a major company is not going to want this. But for you, this could be a purchase of a lifetime. So that's how I ended up with that really rare fabric. And it was, it was tractor trailers full of denim that I had to purchase, but I have it here behind us. And this is the last American denim. Wow. And uh, from Cone Mills. And it's just a beautiful collection of very rare fabrics. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's fun to play with. Yeah. How did you, from an entrepreneur, you know, business startup standpoint, how did you pay for all that denim? Great Please. question. <laughs> so I, uh, one part of my story that I'm very proud of is that uh, I started with no money 
and I never had any investment or used any credit cards or um, had any funding really whatsoever. And so this whole journey has been, I sell a pair of jeans for a hundred bucks and then I spend that hundred dollars to get more fabric that makes maybe $300 and I just snowballed it. And I've made a couple million dollars in, you know, the last 13, 14 years of making okay. jeans. And I've just been able to to pour that all back in. Um, I didn't pay myself for seven years mm-hmm. and live just very poor, very cheap, um, or very frugal. I wouldn't say cheap, but uh, over that time and, and that really just being smart with my money and snowballing is mm-hmm. is how I did it. Where did that business sense come from or that concept to not uh, create a bunch of debt in your business? Well, I was I grew up without anything really. You know, I my my parents, um, you know, they they provided for us in the sense that we had a house and we had food. And uh, but when we moved to South Carolina and my dad was starting his business over again, you know, it was it was really tough for them. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't have a lot of money. And you know, just getting shoes or new clothes; these are things that I had to go get a job to go buy. And so I learned the you know, the craft of figuring out how to get things through, you know, Craigslist or, you know, and then I started to flip things. And then I started to figure out ways to make money to buy the things that I wanted. And so from a young age, I was, I was kind of learning to make money Mm -hmm. to pay for the things that I wanted. And that just eventually just needed to turn into a sustainable thing I could do rather than having to sell couches or guitars, you know, so... So then where did the gene making come mm. in? Where did that passion for clothing come in? Well, I, I, when I moved from New York to South Carolina, it was my junior year in high school. And I was basically starting over socially. Mm. And I had no social capital at all, you know. And so I'm like walking into this group of people that, you know, New York to South Carolina is a totally different demographic. Yeah, that's a and, uh, big culture shift. Big culture shift, yeah. I mean, I... I in New York, I think it was, I think there were, and I think I can confidently say this, I think there were seven people who were African-American in my whole high school. And so moving to the South, it was like, I'm I'm really getting culture for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just, you know, it's just weird to be, you know, plucked from this society and put into another and be like, oh my goodness, like, this is what the real world looks like, you know? Yeah. And so um, I think that... Uh, you know, uh, learning how to dress and learning how to communicate my personality and my identity. You know, I was in, in into music at the time, so I, I wanted to find clothes that made me look like a musician. Or if I wanted to look preppy, I could look preppy. Or if I wanted to look country, I could dress country. And I started to learn that really all you need to do to fit into whatever group is dress the part. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, if I, I wonder if I made these clothes. I wonder if I could access any of these groups. So in college, that's what I started doing. I had a friend that tailored clothes. I started tailoring clothes. And then I just started building outfits that essentially allowed me access to whatever Mm. group I wanted to be a part of. I love that. Yeah. Why focus on jeans and denim? Well, I think that for me, finding a pair of blue jeans was kind of the, that was the hard part. Mm. Because I was in high school I was wearing women's jeans before they even had men's skinny jeans. Sure. And I was like, okay, well, I'm in the women's section. Everybody's making fun of me that I'm wearing women's jeans. And like the rise was really low. And, you know, because I I have a very long torso as well. So it probably looked even crazier on me. But, you know, I wanted a style that wasn't offered. And so I think that being willing to, to go hunt for the thing that I wanted 
it like it never fully satisfied until I, until I started making the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's how a lot of people are. I think jeans are are the basis of many outfits. And if you don't have a good pair of jeans, then you know you don't really you don't have access to whatever whatever character you want to play. So yeah, I think that was the powerful piece that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the time frame from designing clothes in college to opening this spot here. Mm-hmm. How long of a time frame was that? So the journey is basically started in my in my college dorm with a, mm-hmm. a sewing machine I got from Goodwill. And then I moved into my parents' basement for about a year and a half. That's where I built patterns and bought my first sewing machines, my first industrial machines. Then I moved into a rock climbing, rock climbing gym for two years. Okay. So I was in the back of a rock climbing gym. That was an actual sweatshop. I mean, there was it was just <laughs> crazy. Had a bunch of interns in there. And then I moved into West Greenville. Uh, we were the first people in West Greenville. There were like, mm. you know, maybe five other businesses there at the time. Sure. But I mean, it was a different world. And uh, we were there for two years. Then we moved across town to Wade Hampton. So in North Maine, we were there for seven years. And then we've been in this space for about four years now. Okay. So every every two to five years we switched spaces. Yeah. Yeah. What was the price point of your jeans when you started to do custom jeans like as a business mm-hmm. outside of college? Yep. So I remember I actually just saw a post, a, a, a guy who interned for me a long time ago came in and bought some jeans last week and he showed me a bunch of posts. I think this was from 2010, and maybe 2011, and the jeans were fifty dollars for our deluxe uh-huh. and a hundred for our premium. And so the deluxe would have been non cone mills, mm-hmm. and then the the hundred would have been the cone mills. But yeah, fifty to a hundred bucks, and I had a waiting list of four hundred people at that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I I can't even go places without people asking me where their jeans are. Like, mm-hmm. are you done with my jeans? And it was like, I don't even know how to do this. You know, so. Right. I, I realized I needed to raise the prices because the demand was so high. Mm-hmm. I, I love that you're that you have this custom gene because I mean, for a couple of reasons, right? So the fast fashion reason, bringing manufacturing of clothing uh, back to America and into a small town mm-hmm. where, and and there's not a lot of places really that you can in your town walk down and buy a piece of clothing that was made there. True. And so I love that piece of it. Um, probably even more so, but then also the creation of internships and jobs um, for people who are interested in this industry that Mm -hmm. maybe don't have an in to something in New York or a larger city or for just, I got to take care of somebody and stay here in in South Carolina or Greenville. It makes a huge impact in the community. Is any of that tied into this vision as you continue to grow? Well, it's it's very strange because... On one hand, I have this this young guy who was an artist in his parents' basement doing this because he loved it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I've got, you know, uh, like plenty of groups of people who have worked for me where I'm now the boss managing the manufacturing or managing people's schedules and telling people what to do and teaching people. And, and there's a joy in both of those. Mm. I think that uh, at this point, I... I want to. I, I almost need to go back to the drawing boards with a lot of different things to figure out, you know, where 
where are the other corners of my passion that still exists with this business that I almost need to go mine out, mm-hmm. figure out what's the next level that I can take it to. And um, and having a large team is not the current plan. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to like being just an artist is, but that will most likely go back to having a team. And yeah. so it's almost, it's just kind of a cycle that happens a lot, but I have loved everybody who's worked for me and um, we've had such good teams and taught so many great people who have gone mm-hmm. off and done really amazing things uh, that, you know, if you go to New York, you're, you're, you could end up in a job like this, having mm-hmm. a lot of responsibility and, and having a voice in the company. But more times than not, you're, you know, you're going to be, you're going to have a ceiling pretty quickly that you're going to hit right? where you're not going to get to design the whole collection. And, mm-hmm. uh, and here you get to, you know, really learn this extreme, this breadth of, uh, of, of creativity that I don't think you can get other places. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of those like working internships where you're learning on the job yeah. as much anymore. True. That's definitely true. Mm-hmm. You'd be more like observing rather right. than hands-on kind of thing. Yeah. Or yeah. in a, or in a classroom maybe and missing out on the customer interaction piece or the the soft skills that come along with mm-hmm. the actual talent to do something. Oh yeah, I mean, just one thing I always think about is like how to how to handle someone coming to the door who's mm-hmm. trying to sell you insurance. You right, know, that's right. like that's just something that you don't pick up in an internship. Yeah. You know, maybe it's somewhere else, but like here, you have to learn how to say no mm-hmm. to either people who are are asking for for services that we don't offer, or people that are just coming in to to take something from you, whatever that is, or sell you something. And that, like the ability to like stand into like, uh, not stand against the public, but just like have the ability to just push away what doesn't make sense. Yeah. That's a very good life skill, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, especially as a business owner, you th- you have to say no at times. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And not everything fits your business. Yep. Seeing someone do that is, is very, it'll teach you a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there pushback against your custom jean prices? Or even when you had the shop open as almost a, a storefront, was there pushback against prices from from locals? Yeah, I think there's always going to be, I think that's kind of, that's going to be the age old argument, you mm-hmm. know, is, is this, is this somebody profiting off something or is this actually worth that value? Mm-hmm. And the argument just comes down to the customer. If the customer does not pay the price, mm-hmm. then it didn't work, you know? Right. And as, a, as an artist, you know, I'm sure that the, the best artists that we know about, their art dealers were raising their prices all the time mm-hmm. until the point where now those pieces of art are so unattainable to, to anybody to, to even you know, live a lifetime trying to make money just to buy a Picasso or something like that. Right. You know? and, and so I think that the way that I view what I'm doing is this is an, this is an art form that I really enjoy doing, mm-hmm. that I want to enjoy my customers as well, and I want them to enjoy the process. And at the point where that becomes unenjoyable for both people, you know, then maybe maybe the price needs to go up so that I have more time and less pressure mm-hmm. to focus on these, these pieces of, of art. So... Um, but you know, people are always gonna, people, people are always going to comment on price as the first thing, no matter what. Right. And that's one of the tough things as a business person that you just have to deal with that mm-hmm. you don't really get trained on what happens when you receive pushback until you're just faced with it. And yeah. you're like, well, 
if I could sit down and explain to everyone why it costs this much and they don't they don't really want an explanation. They just want right. to say, I can't afford this or this isn't something I value, therefore mm-hmm. this doesn't make sense. Yeah. And that's that's just tough, you know. Mm-hmm. I, my heart is to to love everybody as much as possible. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. And I don't want to walk away with people angry at me. It just right. happens when you work with the public and right. it's how it goes, you know. You've stayed here in Greenville and you've built your business up here in Greenville. Uh, why stay here rather than try to go up to New York and make mm-hmm. it or go out to L.A. or Chicago yep. or even Atlanta? I've thought, I've thought very deeply about this. In fact, I sold a T-shirt one time that said, um, I moved to the big city to be with my peers and now I look like everyone else. Mm. And I think that, that that's boiled down in one sentence how I feel about it. Mm. I, You know, if you moved to New York to be an artist or you moved to Nashville to be an artist, more power to you. I think that's great. And in a lot of ways, if you want to be an actor, you can't be in Greenville. Right. There's no industry here. But for somebody who's trying to trailblaze or, or to be very different, I really enjoy, uh, I enjoy the curiosity that people have on why I have stayed. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I know that I could have been successful in those cities. I know that the the level of pressure required to go to a place like that is something I could be successful at. And um, in many ways, I am going to figure out how to do things like that. But um, but yeah, it, it's one of those things where I really love Greenville and I felt that building a story for a long period of time rooted in my hometown was where I wanted to be. And I feel like the marketing of the story of Greenville is something that... You know, I, I I haven't felt a release from yet. Mm. So it, it's still, I mean, it just feels like if you come to Greenville, you understand the beauty of this town. Yeah. And uh, and I've been able to benefit from from being here. And, and yeah, it, I mean, it's 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 a rare place. Yeah, yeah. it re- it really is. I've had people visit, actually, you know, walk on the Swamp Rabbit Trail, and they're like. Is your whole town outside walking today? Like everybody's out here yeah, having crazy. a blast. Yeah. And I'm like, I know it's that energy when you're out here and everybody's like engaging in a similar activity as you, not the same, but similar. Mm-hmm. And it's just seems like a positive energy as woo woo as that may sound to other people. Yeah, yeah. But it's a totally different experience. I mean, being in the sun is an extremely valuable thing for your body, you know? <laughs> right. And so I, I, being in this park, I get to benefit from that all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love the pace of New York. I love the, almost the cutthroat nature of people honking, cutting you off. And I like that energy because I, I, I want to rise to the occasion. But um, if I don't have to, <laughs> yeah. you know, then man, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I can go to bed, you know, and not have to worry about getting to work the next day that, that early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What has been the biggest challenge in your business? Well, people understanding what this is mm-hmm. is a very tough thing because I have a bunch of sewing machines in here and I can alter your pants. I can make you a pair of coveralls or hunting pants or um, I can make you a leather bag. I can do all kinds of things, but I don't have time for all of that. Right. And uh, if somebody comes through and they... Like I had a guy one time walk in who had a pair of overalls that were, let's just say they were from Old Navy, and the clip on it was broken. And I guess this was for his daughter. He came in. He's like, hey, you know, can you can you weld this clip back together? I was like, what? 
do you think I do? Like, yeah. I don't work with metal, you know? Like, yeah. yes, technically, oh, like uh, a pair of overalls is denim, but like that's the part of the product that I would never, it's right. so strange you even think to come here. Mm-hmm. And that I think is a good example of, of of what it's like to have a store with sewing machines in it. People just think you do everything. Right. And getting to the point where you're explaining to people, I do make these jeans from scratch. Yes, that's it. And there are, Let's just say there are 20 other companies in the United States that have sewing machines that make jeans from scratch. Mm-hmm. Of those 20, there are probably five that do it custom. There might be three that do it custom. And we who do it custom are not the same as those that make it in these in like a stock profile mm-hmm. for people. And so the the custom side of things is very confusing for people because most people have never had a pair of custom clothes or right. custom jeans. And they... After two years, when it gets a hole in it, you know, um, they're like, well, you know, can you fix these? Or if this shrinks after two years or I gain mm-hmm. weight, can you alter these? And getting to the point where I'm, I'm having a, a healthy dialogue with the customer where I do want to help them if there are mm-hmm. things I can do. But if there are asks or questions that they're having that are outside of what I do, um, getting, getting those boundaries set up is very tough. Yeah. And I think that that's probably, that's probably the hardest part of the job is figuring out what are my boundaries mm. in making clothes for the public. And, um, you know, I feel like I have been taken advantage of a lot of times by people asking me to do too much. And that just wears on you after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it kind of, you just kind of find a way to like still love doing what you do yeah. when you're in those positions where somebody's just like hounding you about something that you didn't want to do. I think that's such a great point for any entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs listening of sometimes having a wide focus is great for your business. And sometimes having one focus and one thing that you do is the best model for your business. It took a long time to figure that out. I I was making custom t-shirts, custom leggings, custom belts, jackets, aprons, all kinds of products that were not jeans. And, um, you know, if somebody came through and they're like, I want to support you, I want to buy three t-shirts, an apron, a belt, a wallet, and a pair of jeans, I would have to go to five separate corners of the room to make each individual product. And that might take me a week to do that order. And uh, they're like, well, it's just a couple t-shirts. And it's like, well, yeah, but I had to change the thread on every machine to go from white to black. And like just changing the thread was super hard right? and made me not want to do it, you know? So <laughs> I, I have unfortunately said yes to too many things mm-hmm. and and saying yes, of course, I think is is like probably anybody's problem in life is saying yes to the wrong things. I think you made a great point earlier on uh, that this is art mm. and you're an artist versus uh, someone calling you a tailor right. or saying I'm a tailor. Mm-hmm. That's a totally different idea and feel. Yeah. If you tell me you're an artist and you make jeans, I'm expecting a different product than if you tell me I'm a tailor, bring me your old jeans and I'll fix them. Totally. And I, I love that you made that point. Yeah. I mean, the the fabric I have is so extremely rare. Mm-hmm. And if you're getting me, who has had 15 years of experience, building you a one-of-one pair of jeans, I mean, that's just... Yeah, that's a that's a dream for a lot of people to mm-hmm. have have that high quality of a garment, and um, it took me a while to value myself in that way to really understand how how rare this was, but um, but yeah, I I have to view it as art because I really do believe that's what it is. Mm-hmm. 
I, I uh, recently was on one of the art walks uh, in West Greenville. Mm-hmm. And we went to Mark Malfinger's studio. Okay, yeah. And we were just sitting there, and he sat down next to me and started sketching me. And then he gave it to me when we left. Wow. And I was like, wow, exactly. Wow. Mm -hmm. Like, this was a five-minute sketch on his notepad of me, but this is a guy who creates the most incredible batiks that, you know, are hanging in the the bohemian over here and are, you know, around the world. And so, like... That was such an honor, and that's how I feel buying a pair of jeans from you as well. Totally. Like, I'm getting this piece of art, and I'm a denim head. I love my jeans. Mm-hmm. I worked at Levi's. Yep. I have like 20 pairs of jeans that I've had for years mm-hmm. that I wear in different capacities now because they're either stretched out or torn or whatever, yep. or I cut them off and I make my own shorts. Mm-hmm. So I love denim. So to get denim art from someone who's been doing it for so long at a local level, stayed in their hometown, like it feels special to me to have the opportunity to buy that. Totally. And it's, I think, changing that mindset in our culture too of if you're going to save up for this one thing, and that might be priority to you, but it's the same concept. Totally. I mean, if you look at the prices that Hermes are charging for a handbag, And then you actually go to their factory and you see how long it takes to make one of those bags and how much detail goes into it. And that their apprentices can't even touch a bag for two years before they're trained. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's like, I mean, they have apprentices, you know, it's, it's really, it's a, it's such a high level art form that in America, we, we don't understand luxury at all Mm because we don't have many luxury brands in the States, specifically when it comes to clothing, you know, I can't think of many luxury labels that come from the United States. It's only Italians or French, you know. It's, right. You don't see an Hermes from the United States. Mm-hmm. Because of that, you know, we have the Costco models or we have the Old Navy models. And and then we have a lot of people that are, you know, America first, America first, but are buying everything made <sighs> in another country, you know. And it's like, yeah. well, I, I want you to, I want you to be able to say America first. But you also have to be okay with the money that America costs. You know, it's yeah. like to to live in this country is 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 brutal. You have to make so much money at all times to mm-hmm. stay afloat. That if you have somebody making you something, then you know they chose to forgo some career making you know hundred grand a year, mm-hmm. grinding in the office every day, to then make a lot less to make you something that's beautiful. So right, it's a game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I always talk about that circular economy too. And, and again, that reframing of our mindset of costs to buy local goods will continue to go up if you do not buy local goods. That's right. Because the money's not staying in yeah, the economy totally. when you buy a cheap item from a store that's getting it from overseas. Yep. So, the you know, when people are like, well, it's too expensive to shop local, I'm like, because you're not shopping local. Exactly. And then you can still have your local brand that's maybe not a luxury brand, but it's still a brand and local that can have, like your price point might not change because it's on a different level. Yeah. But you could have a, another local brand that's doing something different on more of a mass scale with a lower cost. Totally. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. You know, and I think Swamp Rabbit Cafe is a grocery store in town. Mm-hmm. It's a local grocery store. And we love to buy our groceries from yeah. them because it supports local farmers. And, um, you know, there's this one specific type of milk that we like to buy from them. And, you know, it's it's going to be way more expensive than a gallon of milk anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But you can just, 
you can taste it. Yep. You know, and if we're cooking and we want to have the best meal, you got to get the best ingredients. Yeah. And so supporting that that local ecosystem for us is is just it's kind of a no-brainer yeah. we just it's after you have the quality you're like i can't really go back exactly exactly <laughs> little shout out to what wet not farms they have lettuce over there at swamp rat okay that is delicious and Amazing. i ate it all summer long yep. like that is the only lettuce i want mm-hmm. i'm spoiled now yep can't go back no um what's next for you and the brand i know some of it's a little under wraps so yep. i don't want to spoil anything but well, I'll, Any teasers? I'll tell I'll tell a, a piece of it. So, um, you know, I basically I have realized that my customer, I enjoy spending a lot of time with my customer, mm. and I enjoy giving an experience that is so unique to my customer that they walk away telling the story of what just happened. Mm. And I am going to play further into what that looks like, and having a retail storefront. And building stock jeans, having people come in and buying them, doesn't give a different experience than what you can get going to an Old Navy. And so the idea of selling jeans in that way or selling things simply through a website doesn't bring me joy anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't like the idea of having to do these big Black Friday sales to have big numbers in my fall. You know, I I would rather have customers that want to that want to form a, a tighter, stronger relationship around how they're how they're looking and how they're dressing, mm. and uh, and build those profiles in a in a, a longer form relationship than just that pair of pants right there. So, um, getting to the point where I have the allowance to spend more time with my customers mm. is really where I'm going, yeah. and uh, how I'm going to do that is going to look extremely interesting. Um, I'm playing a really strong game right now online where mm-hmm. Billiam is now private and uh, I'm removing followers of people that, you know, I mean, just if you look through social media, there's just so many fake accounts that follow. Yeah. And uh, as I, as I communicate on social media, I really don't want that algorithm to be including the fake accounts. And so culling through my customers and making sure that the people I'm speaking to are the bought in people, it's like, I'm getting back to, to who I used to be and, and mm-hmm. how I used to do business. And so, um, you know, I think that's probably that's probably what I can say. I do have extremely rare fabric, and you know, there are different tiers that if somebody wants to have the rarest stuff that I have, then you know that they're going to get a quote. You mm-hmm. know, and that's just yeah. how it's going to go. And so, um, yeah, it, it basically, if you are a supporter of Billiam and you like to buy experiences, you are going to your head's going to spin with what we're about to do. You're going to love awesome. it. Awesome. So if somebody is not following you yet, but they hear this and they go, that's so cool. I Mm want to know what they're going to do. Yeah. Is this an experience I can have and get an incredible pair of denim that I'm going to have for a decade Mm -hmm. or more? Yep. How do they follow you? Are you just looking at follow requests and accepting if they seem legit or? Well, it's tough. I'm not going to let anyone in until mm-hmm. January 1st. Okay. So basically okay. you have to get in the queue. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's going to be a total mystery. I basically, the people who have followed me thus far in mm-hmm. my journey, those people are having kind of the last opportunities to buy before the price goes up. Yeah. And, um, and you know, there's still, I think I got, down to about 8,000 followers thus far. 
And, you know, if 8,000 people bought a pair of jeans, that's a huge amount of money. Right. I really only need a couple hundred of those people who haven't purchased to just jump in mm-hmm. and uh, and support now. And and so it's, it's kind of like I don't need more followers. The people who are already there are just kind of getting an ultimatum at this point. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it might be a customer-only thing. and Everyone might get removed and only customers are welcome back in. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how that's going to work yet, but... Um, that idea is really how it's going to go. But, you know, you can still buy a pair through the website. Mm -hmm. So if you go to billionjeans.com, you can set up an appointment at the current prices as they go up each month. And um, you can still come in and get a pair. Um, You just can't be part of the marketing yeah. Yet. Uh, maybe if you, if you buy a pair, you, I'll let you in. That's, okay. that's kind of how it works. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. One question I, I should have prepped you for and I didn't. So forgive me. No, bring it on. But I ask everybody at the end of every episode is if you could sit down with someone and have a conversation like me and you did today, whether living or dead, who would you like to sit down with and, and talk with? Well, I really, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to the Edison, mm. um, uh, Nikola Tesla, um, definitely more of the inventors mm-hmm. and Steve Jobs would be, you know, would be a great person to speak with. Um, you know, I think ultimately potentially the cell phone was the worst thing ever created, but, um, still interesting to hear the mindsets around right. these, these inventors that came up with things. Maybe Nikola Tesla, cause he was doing some stuff with physics and electricity that was just out of this world kind of stuff. But speaking with people who, who, are trying to invent new ways of society communicating and and uh, um, and and just like bettering generations of mm. like the quality of life of generations of people. I think that would be great. Um, yeah, I mean that would be amazing. I mean, yeah. I had thought about this recently. I was like, I wonder if Jesus was a carpenter. I wonder if there's a table out there that he made that's like a made by Jesus Christ table, (laughs) you know, that still exists. I think that obviously sitting down with him would be a a really crazy experience or just, you know, really, yeah, any, anybody that's, that's just done just, just dynamic things, Napoleon, you know, it's just like all these people would be great. I have never thought of... Where is the furniture that Where's Jesus the furniture? Made? <laughs> I want to know. It's got to be the best table ever made. Like, was you know? there anybody being like, oh, that guy on the cross made this? We should put this in a museum. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, I've never yeah. thought of that before. If there was an artifact that was in a museum that was made by Jesus, I think that would be. Mm-hmm. I, I looked it up. I, I don't think there is. But No, I've this. never even thought about that before, but that is such a great connection. That's probably the last week I was like, I wonder if that table exists, but anyways. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and sharing what's going on uh, with your brand. And I can't wait to see what's next. Um, And I'm about to try on a pair of jeans that you made for me. And I'm really excited. They're going to be perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. 
Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.